0: Welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman.
1: And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests
0: Speak for yourself.
1: Serving the people of God and God's Church here in the Bay Area.
0: While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in.
1: So welcome back. I'm so excited to welcome our guest today, the Reverend Canon Stephanie Spellers, who currently serves as presiding Bishop Michael Curry's Canon for Evangelism, Reconciliation, and Creation.
0: She is a gifted author and preacher. You know, I, I read her first book a few years ago, Radical Welcome. Embracing God, the Other, and the Spirit of Transformation, uh, which I just saw it's just been re-released uh, in a 15th anniversary edition. Claire, we invited her to speak at our first Newbigan House Diocese of California conference, the uh, Building the Beloved Community conference back in January of 2020. Uh mm-hmm. You Know we had no idea what was coming just a few months later, but we had no one knew <laughs> wonderful, nobody knew. But it was we had this amazing gathering at Grace Cathedral pre pandemic. And what I remember it, well, I remember a lot about it, but I mainly remember that she preached with such conviction and power that, well, she just nearly blew the Ghiberti doors right off the place. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I am not surprised. She's also been bringing some fresh air into my congregation, Christ Episcopal Church Los Altos, in the heart of Silicon Valley. We've been studying her most recent book, The Church Cracked Open Disruption, Decline, and New Hope for Beloved Community. I'm finding it really impactful, and so is my community.
0: Well, let's keep the fresh air coming. Welcome to the Vital and Thriving Podcast, Ken and Stephanie.
2: Thank you so much, and thank you for that introduction. I feel well welcomed.
0: <laughs> Good. Now, I I love following you on Facebook, and I see that you uh, you often are going back and forth to Kentucky, uh, which I think you're from. And as much as I want to talk to you about bourbon uh, <laughs> and horse races and things like that, I I just please we it, could just,
1: we could yeah, let. I know,
0: I know, but, you know, just tell me, did you, are you from Kentucky? Did you grow up in the Episcopal Church?
2: I am from Kentucky. I did not grow up in the Episcopal Church. Um, I grew up in a small city, I guess the capital city, but very small place, Frankfurt. And uh, my family is kind of classic Black Baptist, some AME, um, but um, no Episcopalians. And uh, so mm. when I joined this church, they were all like, oh, we always knew you were like that. I'm like, huh? <laughs> which which was probably my first inkling, I think, of, oh, that's really how a lot of people see the Episcopal Church and its elitism and its kind of white domination mm. was my own family's reaction to my becoming Episcopalian.
0: Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I know... For some time now, you've been making your life in New York City, uh, a place where I live for about ten years, and absolutely love. And I'm just wondering, do you do you love it? Um, Are you part of a particular congregation there?
2: Mm -hmm. I love that you were here for ten years. That's how long I've been here as of this summer. It's it's ten years, and it was a dream come true, y'all, to to move here. I had been in Boston for about twenty years, and when I turned forty. I went to my bishop's office and said, I'm going to be moving. And he said, where? And I said, New York City. And he said, when? And I said, "Mm, about eight months. And he said, what will you be doing? I was like, I don't know. That's why I'm giving you eight months notice. (laughs) Um, And I just knew that I wanted to, I'll I'll be honest with you. I told my bishop, I want to live juicy. And right now, I'm not living a juicy (laughs) life here in Boston. And, of course, my bishop, who at the time was the superior, he had been the superior of a monastic order, Tom Shaw, and then he became bishop of Massachusetts. When I told him I was making this choice in order to live juicy, he responded, I can honestly say I've never made a life choice based on that criteria. (laughs)
0: Well, so yes. I, I know we we have some Diomass people uh, who listen to this podcast, oh, so I, I think we're going to get some we're going to get some juicy controversy going here.
2: It uh, might happen. <laughs> I loved, but I loved Boston. I loved it so much. I loved planting a church there. You know, we may talk about that eventually. But um, but yeah, now I'm a part of New York City's St. Bart's um, Church. It's it's kind of the opposite of my ministry in Boston. Honestly, it's it's. The church on Park Avenue uh, mm. between 50th and 51st streets next to the Waldorf Astoria. But, um, but it's really a church that is figuring out and has figured out a lot about how to occupy multiple worlds. Like we have a thriving ministry with homeless and hungry people who often are having an impact on the congregation itself. And then there's also the captains of industry and you know people who have meetings at private clubs in the city. So it's, it's a wonderful mixture and I enjoy seeing where's Jesus in all of this. It's, it's like a microcosm of the church at large. Yeah.
1: So I didn't realize that you had moved to New York before joining the presiding bishop staff. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking so much about discernment in vital and thriving and in this podcast, I wonder if you could share just a little bit about like, how did you, you talked about discerning the call to New York. um, Mm -hmm. But like how, what was finding your way once you got there like and and how did you hear the spirit moving Um, you
2: well no i i this gets more and more interesting i guess i have no i am a huge proponent of discernment i think that actually one of my charisms if if we were able to identify those is the charism of discernment with other people and i really felt god speaking to me and Mm -hmm. um and saying i i want you to take what you've learned in 20 years in boston as a church planter at the cathedral and kind of go and knit that together with a fuller life because I was such a workaholic. And, you know, my friends, my family members were like, where are you? Where are you? And I just kept saying, I'm serving Jesus. And one of my aunts said, I don't think Jesus would require you to do all of this, like, and to not Mm. be connected (laughs) to any of us. (laughs) Mm. And of course there are biblical stuff about that, but but I think what she was really calling me to was, where's the fullness of life? And so I I knew that I often experienced that in New York. And so I started to put the feelers out there with the churches and um, the Diocese of Long Island, which is the diocese comprised of Brooklyn, Queens, and all of the rest of Long Island. In that diocese, the bishop said, you know, I'd love to have you come and work with us on missional vitality and on helping us mm-hmm. to figure out how to be church in a setting this diverse, this fast changing. And, um, I was so happy to come and do that. It really felt like the, this blend of the things that I loved and, and plenty of challenge too. Like I was also helping churches to figure out if it was time to close. So some hard, hard work, both in the Mm -hmm. birthing, kind of in the birthing ward and in the hospice ward, it felt like. So, um, yeah, but that was what got me to New York. And then when Bishop Curry was elected in 2015, he called and said, I want you to serve as one of my canons. And I said, no. And <laughs> um, Amazing. I, didn't, I didn't want that level. Honestly, I didn't want that level of responsibility. I didn't want to be a target because mm-hmm. I felt mm-hmm. like once you're at this level, everybody mm-hmm. thinks they can do your job better and everybody thinks they have a right to mm-hmm. say so publicly. And, yeah. and they just start kind of coming after you. And especially if you're a younger leader, a leader of color, a woman kind of coming from a non-traditional background with church planting and also coming from a, you know, working class background. I was just like, I don't want those people being able to paste a, you know, a target on my back and just have open season. So eventually, though, he he and the Holy Spirit worked on me and I said yes. And I could not be more grateful that I did.
1: Well, us too.
0: Thank you for that, and I'm so glad you you brought up uh, your background in church planting, which is a big part of my ministry experience as well. Indeed. Uh, you know one of the one of the practices we're exploring with the congregations in the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area is invitation, mm-hmm. uh, innovating a culture of radical welcome. Mm-hmm. And you've written a lot about that, but I really would like for you to tell us a little bit about your adventure in starting the crossing uh, in the Cathedral of St. Paul.
2: Mm. So much of the crossing community is the story of invitation, really. Uh, I, I love that practice and that word, you kind of bringing that in. For starters, we we wanted to invite people who are not usually at the center of the church's life to come and be in conversation with Anglican traditions. And um, and to say together, well, here's how we hear God moving in these uh, and moving afresh through these sacraments. Here's how we hear God speaking afresh in these scriptures. Here's how we understand God to be working in the world through Anglican tradition and and things even more ancient than Anglicanism. And um, and so we went out there and we invited people not to be a part of a worship service. Hear me now. <laughs> we did not go out and say, hey, come to our worship service that we put together for you. Because that's not really much of an invitation. That's an invitation to consumption, but it's not an invitation to ministry or to real Christian community. And so what we did was we went out and Sat and I had you know gathered up people who were younger and kind of very hungry, but maybe not, connected as much with church, folk of color, queer folks, all of us together kind of went forth talking to other people about what do you dream and what is is God dreaming in you and how does that connect with what God's been dreaming in this Episcopal community all along and Mm. how does that get woven together? And a lot of folks said, oh, you mean you want to hear from us? Yeah. You mean we can do the preaching? And we said, yeah, like I actually did not do the preaching at the crossing community for the first four years of that ministry. Mm -hmm. My job as priest was to train other people so they could discover their voices, their way of proclaiming good news. So it was all about authentic invitation and radical welcome. In other words, not just saying, you're welcome, you're welcome, but really welcoming people to bring their whole selves and to help to shape this incarnation of the body of Christ. And it was, it was a beautiful thing. It was a challenging thing. We were doing church in a way that none of us had actually seen church done. You know, worshiping Thursday evenings, lay people doing the preaching, you know, very engaged with the street. Even as we were worshiping inside, there was a lot of movement back and forth for us. We would go to like a nightclub at least once a month right after worship on Thursdays and I was still wearing my collar (laughs) and we would just continue talking to people and inviting them to talk about Mm -hmm. Jesus and God and the Holy and divine and how they were meeting God on the floor of this, you know, this club, you know, in this moment. So it was all about invitation and not just about, not just about kind of telling people about ourselves, you know, like A lot of invitation is actually us telling people how great we are. And mm. I don't think people experience that as much of an invitation. I think they'd rather know that you care about them and respect them and want to build a relationship where we're all changed.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. I love that reframing of invitation. Yeah. Makes me think about another complex word in our tradition, uh, evangelism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Go no on. secret that we Episcopalians <laughs> are moderately uncomfortable with this word, just a, um, just, and <laughs> just a little bit, <laughs> right? And you know, in in many ways, for good reason. Um, for a lot of people, it brings up these associations of colonialism and proselytizing, and kind of an expression of Christianity that maybe has very different kind of ethical and and even like human rights values than our church um, seeks to uphold. But then if we distance ourselves from this word or this practice, we can find ourselves in the ridiculous and completely incomprehensible place of thinking the story of Jesus and the way of Jesus shouldn't be shared or right. or just not even knowing how to share it. So I wonder if if you could talk a little bit about how you've been able to help Christians and, and maybe particularly more progressive Christians embrace the idea and the practices of evangelism.
2: So this is One of the first charges that I received when I came into this job, and it's partly because when Bishop Curry was was um, on the slate for presiding bishop, he was telling the church, I won't just be your CEO, you know, like chief executive officer. I want to be your chief evangelism officer. And so when he brought me in, he said to me, he's like, and I want you to implement on this and help our church. To fall in love with Jesus and have a different relationship with with the ministry of evangelism, and I said,
1: "How long do I have?" (laughs) You Um, said, "This is why I said no to this job in the first place."
2: (laughs) Like, wait, you gave me
1: evangelism, racial reconciliation,
2: and the care creation. No bigs, you know. Um, So on so on the evangelism front, I think a lot of what we started with was really doing a deep listening. Uh, I used to be a journalist, so my orientation is don't assume you already know the answers, but go in with good questions. So, so when I came into this, it wasn't, all right, we're going to go out and tell Episcopalians, here's how to do evangelism, now get to it. Instead, we said, what's the hang-up? What What is there that's making it so difficult for us? And I brought together a team of people, some of whom were kind of evangelism resistant, and um, so you start to see my method here. It's kind of what we did with the crossing as well, like, you know. But uh, like, if we're going to crack these these really knotty problems and issues, don't go about it the same way, talking to the same people. So there was a whole crew of us who were talking, and there was also a I think a task force working on some of this as well. And what we ended up with was a practical definition of Episcopal evangelism, and. One that was really rooted in Episcopal theology. And what we said is that evangelism is the spiritual practice of seeking, naming, and celebrating Jesus's lively presence in the stories of people everywhere, then mm. inviting them to more. And then we've just been going around now. I think that was maybe four or five years ago that we kind of came up with that in this this think tank almost, practice tank. And um, and since then, we've just been breaking that, breaking that open with folks across the church in different ways. But the idea is that evangelism is not just about I have a formula, I have something to tell you, but that instead it's about seeking, naming, and celebrating. So it's me going around, mm-hmm. for instance, in that nightclub. I was talking about. Here's an example. If I go into that nightclub and people are like, what are you doing here? You're a priest. And it gives me the opportunity to say, actually, I find so much of the spirit and the life of God right here with you. So I'm seeking God in their midst. And when I'm seeing God, I'm naming. This feels like God to me. And then I'm celebrating that as I'm dancing with them and everything else. And then they're saying, you mean God is here? And I get to say, absolutely. And then they start saying, actually, I did kind of feel like this was really life-giving when this thing happened. Or, you know, someone really made a sacrifice for me when I was feeling like this. And I guess that's God. And then I get to celebrate what they are naming as God in their midst. Yeah. And then I can say, you know, if you ever want to talk more about those, you know, here's my card. Or, you know, Mm. or here's a poem or here's a book that I love that really helps me when I'm, when I'm working stuff out, you know, at that deeper level, maybe it'll, maybe it'll serve you too. And that's the more, you know, it's not more like, and now here comes the hook and I'm going to drag you into church. The more, you know, inviting people to more is simply inviting them to more of life with God. I'm not in charge of how that shows up. Um, So it's a, it's a very decolonized practice of evangelism. It's a very curious and open practice of evangelism. It's a practice that honors people where they are and doesn't just try to drag them to where I am. So that's what we've been trying to introduce. And when we share evangelism like that with Episcopalians, a lot of folks are saying, oh, well, if that's evangelism, I, I could try that."
0: Oh, uh, is that yeah. some of what's been going on in these, um, Episcopal revivals
2: that you've been a part of?
0: That's a word I grew up with in the Baptist Church, and I have been really delighted to see it showing up in the Episcopal Church.
2: Well, I thank you. That was another one that was early on for us. Um, yeah, no, it's it's revivals the way we're doing them. We're doing these Episcopal revivals all across the church, have been for now six years. And the Episcopal revival, again, its it's an Episcopal take on revivals. So, you know, we are, a revival is supposed to be twofold. It should be this opportunity for people to experience the renewal and reviving spirit of God within. So the church itself has changed because we are, we are asking God, come change us, come mold us, come fill us. We are not what you wanted us to be, but we want to be that. Revive us so that we can. But it's also asking God to revive, to renew, to transform the communities around us. Hmm. And so Hmm. there should be a social justice, social mission component to any revival. Relationship with people we don't know. And again, relationship that changes us and changes them and invites people into this big more, but in a really bold and and vocal way. So that's what we've been doing with these revivals. They're... They're not in a box. You know, it's not like revival in a box. Here's your kit, you know, for it necessarily. They're very contextual. We invite folks to discern what does good news sound like where you are? And then your revival should proclaim that good news and invite people into more where you are. And um, so, yeah, it actually is very much informed by that understanding of evangelism and just generally by our desire to celebrate God. Wherever God is showing up, and not to think that we bring God to anyone, in a revival and a church service, in whatever. Like we are, we are bringing a word about God, but we're bringing it to meet what people are already discovering, and then growing life together.
1: Yeah. In- your response just reminds me, we interviewed our bishop a couple episodes ago and talked I about the practices him. that, yeah, the practices that kind of root vital and thriving. And um, one of the things we named was how these practices are about the the way that the church lives, but that they center the community that the church serves, not the you know, numbers of people or the classic metrics of church. Mm -hmm. I just hear that so much in how you're talking about revival and invitation and evangelism.
2: Yeah. It's not just just the latest church growth strategy. Right. Um, I hope. Honestly, I believe that it does grow churches, but it grows them in spiritual life, spiritual Mm -hmm. vitality. And the more we grow in that spiritual vitality and grow in relationship with our neighbors, as we invite them towards spiritual vitality, churches grow. Like, but if yeah. we're trying to get people to come inside and do the same old thing with us, that honestly isn't really—it's not spiritually energizing for us. Why do we think anybody else wants to be a part of that? That's honestly the church that I pray would get cracked open, and would mm. would you know elements of that church need to 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 stay on the floor. Once they did die. Actually, no, I will say to die. I think that as Christians, we should not be afraid to talk about death and resurrection. So I'm correcting myself on that. There are parts of our church's life that need to die.
0: Yeah.
2: And we should allow that to happen knowing that we've already sensed the death ourselves. Mm. Can we now speak Mm. honestly of it? We're tiptoeing around the body as if something hasn't died. And it has. And new life can be reborn. But can we talk
1: about what's died? Mm -hmm. Mm, So important. Mm -hmm. Um, So we really want to talk about your ministry of reconciliation in the Episcopal Church. Our denomination is in this unprecedented time of focus on justice and reconciliation. And many of our congregations, including mine, have gone through the Sacred Ground Curriculum seeking to follow Jesus on a spiritual path of telling the truth about our churches and race, proclaiming the dream of beloved community, practicing the way of love and the pattern of Jesus, and repairing the breach in society and our institutions. Can you share um, how this initiative came about? Yes. Yeah, so what you're talking about, in a
2: way, the, um, the four practices that you just named, Uh, are the becoming beloved community labyrinth, we say. So in other words, you know, um, this was back in 2016 and 17. We knew that we wanted to embrace the work of racial justice, healing and reconciliation more fully as a church and to make, to make a lifelong, a long-term commitment, not just another program. And so our team did again, a lot of listening, a lot of (laughs) connecting and, what we discerned uh, on the racial justice and healing side of my portfolio, the team that I work with, we said, actually, we, we think we need a framework. We need a spiritual framework for understanding this ministry and how it changes us into the likeness of Christ and how when we engage it, we are growing in the likeness of Christ. So that's where we came up with this idea that, that the work of racial healing and reconciliation and justice is like walking a labyrinth you know, and that there are these four components of the labyrinth, four parts of any ministry of justice, reconciliation, and healing it has to include truth-telling. It has to include proclamation of what we're going toward and not just what we're against. It has to include practice in the ways of healing and reconciliation, and that's where you get formation, anti-racism training, things like that. And it has to include justice work. It can't just be about us staring at ourselves. It also needs to be changing systems and institutions. And so we we shared that framework. We've created various curricula around it, the becoming beloved community framework. And then a few years ago, we said, "All right, this is good. It's going. Folk are engaging it locally at diocesan levels. It's great. But there's another piece to this, especially around the formation piece. And that is, we are a church that's about 90% white. And in the wake of so much turmoil in our country, and our own lives, around race, we realize, we're like, you know, we can't fix everything. Nobody can. We can't try to take on everything. But if we're a 90% white church, can we create a tool, a journey, so that white people can connect with other white people and just talk each other through the work ahead. And that's where Sacred Ground came in. You know that, That's where you get that, especially in that practicing the healing way of Jesus, kind of part of the labyrinth. That's a particular project, a particular curriculum, so that white people can talk to other white people. And I don't have to be in the room Um, because I'm tired. And there's only there's only, you know, like, again, there's only 10% of us who are people of color. So if we were the only ones capable of leading this work, it's not gonna get done. Um, Mm. And honestly, white folks created these systems, these systems serve white cultural domination. So it stands to reason that white people are going to be the ones who ultimately will have to make real steps and sacrifices in order to dismantle it and to come to new life. So that sacred ground is really inviting white folk to walk on that ground, to recognize it as sacred, and to help each other, and to have folk of color in the mix too, but really white folk to get other white people moving. And it's happening. Mm -hmm. I've just been amazed at the movement that's really come up around sacred ground. It's, It's completely shocked all of us, but we feel like the spirit was a part of that.
0: You know, I had the privilege—I I mentioned earlier—of uh, having you here for our first uh, Building Beloved Unity Conference mm-hmm. in 2020. Uh, you, along with uh, Professor Willie Jennings, led us some through some pretty deep reflection on what this work before us is. So, I wasn't surprised to see the church cracked open mm-hmm. uh, emerge from your pen. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I was really moved though by the the kind of the guiding metaphor of the book, the story mentioned in the four gospels of a woman who breaks up an alabaster jar to anoint Jesus with this costly ointment. And you actually compare the Episcopal church to the broken jar.
2: Uh,
0: But the part I love about it is you say we should resist the urge to gather the pieces and reassemble the jar Rather, we should accept the anointing as the means to heal our brokenness. And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm quoting you here, help one another grow into all that we're created to be. (laughs) Um, How uh, This just seems to me to be like the Holy Spirit inspiration. (laughs) Could you just say a word about kind of how that came to you? Uh,
2: Uh, um, I, I actually, and thank you for the opportunity, Scott, to thank you all. Because that conference really was one of, the, one of the germinating seeds, I guess, if you will, that, that led me to writing this book. You know, when I was with wow. you all, yeah, yeah. And we were talking about kenosis, the idea of self-emptying mm. and how, you know, what, is, what are the ways that the church needs to embrace self-emptying or kenosis, especially a white supremacist or white dominant church, you know, a church so steeped in empire and colonialism. The only way we can get free is through kenosis what it felt like like we had been having those conversations and then suddenly here came this pandemic and what was the pandemic if not like it, it wasn't an invitation to self-emptying it was a demand to self-empty right it yeah. was it was a forced letting go of so much of what we held dear, so much of what we just defined as church as christian as community and so for me, I watched that happen. It was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. That's kenosis. It's happening. Um, and then with the death of George Floyd, it felt like a whole nother part of the jar, if you will, started cracking apart. And that was what we understood about America, what we understood about our national narratives. Many of us had already been examining this, make no mistake. But, but with the death of George Floyd and the pandemic, it's, it just seemed to, to increase exponentially. The group of people who could now talk about this and realize we couldn't not talk about it, what had been cracked open, what was broken all along, what did not need to be a part of our church's life, but had been. You know, where white supremacy had been in the story of this church, where white supremacy had been in the story of America, where empire were in the story of You know, like, and where, where does empire even fit in with discipleship? And like, we could ask those questions in a way that we could not have actually remember even saying the phrase white supremacy at, at the gathering with y'all, um, Scott and people coming up to me afterwards and saying, we don't use those words. Mm. We don't use those Mm. words. And it was, you know, there were more evangelical folks and whatever, but they were, they weren't mad Mm. at me, but they were just saying, Wow. You can say white supremacy in your church. I'm like, "Well, we're we're trying to." That was January of 2020. By June of 2020, <laughs> we were saying it.
0: Oh yeah.
1: It oh, got yeah. cracked
2: open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I think once I saw that happening, I I had to reflect. I had to start pulling pieces together and got a little time, 7 weeks off work, you know, in order to to do even more research. It was painful. It was a deep dive that honestly took me into some degree of depression for a little while. Mm. I was also just exhausted, <laughs> like writing so much so quickly. But, um, but it was, I, I suddenly felt the weight of, I just felt the weight of it and the anger at our church, the disappointment mm. and, and the need for hope really desperate clinging to God because I couldn't generate that hope for myself. Yeah. So yeah, mm. writing that book, I'm, I'm grateful that it has been meaningful for a number of folk out there. It was what I needed, you know, to believe mm. that there could be this kind of disruption, decline, this kind of reckoning. And that somewhere out there was still the hope of beloved community only, only if we could get back in line with Jesus. And his way of love. Uh,
1: You write with such a honest and kind of devastating clarity about the history of our church. Um, And I I just want to quote you again. Um, You write about how the Episcopal Church, and I quote, energetically cooperated with, provided theological cover and blessing for, and received wealth and privilege from systems of colonization and white domination. Mm -hmm. End quote. Um, so you talked is. a little bit about kind of the, the cost um, of doing that research and really immersing yourself in this history. Um, I, I wonder how you thought through how to share this in the writing. I, I mean, I thought how you even just structured the historical chapters was really um, very effective, um, but I imagine took a lot of a lot of work. <laughs>
2: Those were the last chapters I wrote. <laughs> uh. I kept coming back to them because they were so hard, Claire. They were yeah. so hard. Um, yeah. My editor kept saying, just, just call them done. I'm like, they're not done. They're still, like, hmm. I feel like I've put all this stuff out there, but you can't just dump that on people. <laughs> and <laughs> there wasn't, And there wasn't an authentic bridge yet to the chapters where I was talking more about the love of community and hope and kenosis, and solidarity. Um, it, I hadn't made the connection yet. So I, mm. I rewrote those chapters several times. Um, mm. And then I ended up writing this extensive, I think it's about a 50-page study guide to go with the book. And a lot of the a lot of the history pieces that were on the cutting room floor found their way into that study guide. And that's mm-hmm. a free resource at churchcrackedopen.com. Mm. But yeah, I I... I didn't want people to go so far into that valley without a companion. And so mm. I felt real mm. responsibility that if I was going to open this door and take all of us into our collective closet like this, <laughs> take all of us descending you know, into this valley, I better have a sense of what's the way out. Not how to fix racism, but just mm. what is... What is the overall hope that God has given us for human community? And, Mm. and to me, that hope is grounded in Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's grounded in, you know, just this, this, the knowledge that he saw all of this, he saw even more of this and still formed these communities that were the most unlikely self-giving self-sacrificing communities. And even we, pretend that they weren't as extreme and radical as they were, or that he was not as extreme and radical as he was. Um, But God has shown us a way. And in the way of love, what I see is seven practices that if you live them, they are an antidote to empire.
1: Mm.
2: If you turn, learn, pray, worship, bless, rest, and, and go with your whole heart in a community you will be a resistor to empire, and you will look, and love, and live more like Jesus. That's the way. Mm.
1: But it I, took me some
2: time your, to put these pieces together. Your hope gives me hope.
0: That is good. Mm, good. You know, we so we are we're recording this a uh, few days before Juneteenth, Hallelujah. Uh, which last year was named a feast here. Uh, A feast day here in the Diocese of California, and I'm just curious what comes up for you around this day, and how you think Episcopal churches can faithfully observe it.
2: Mm. There are a lot of ways, and so much of it depends on your community and uh, and like who's around you. I think for Black communities in particular, for folk who are in solidarity with Black communities. Juneteenth is a day, um, I think it's a complex day for remembering how long it took even for the word of liberation to get around, you know, because what we're mm-hmm. actually marking with Juneteenth is when the last group of enslaved people uh, and and just and black folk in general found out that, wait, we're, we're free. What? Um uh, And so, so there's something there about just the history of America and the fact that even when the emancipation proclamation was made, America was still ambivalent about making sure that people knew they were free, you know, (laughs) like, what does that tell us about the work? Mm. What does that tell us? Um, So there's that piece, you know, around, you know, so for black folk and people in solidarity with us, sharing honestly that America has always been ambivalent about freedom for black people. And how will we untangle that and make our commitment as unambiguous and unambivalent as possible? There, I just made up a word, unambivalent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so that's one part, I think, of celebrating Juneteenth. I also happen to believe that it should be a liberation holiday for everybody, you know, that it should be Mm -hmm. the day of proclamation you know, to proclaim, you know, victory for, you know, and freedom for the oppressed, you know, recovery of sight for the blind, you know, it's all Luke four that, um, you know, that's what comes to me when I imagine Juneteenth mm-hmm. and how we, how we it. that it should be a celebration of liberation in solidarity with whoever, whoever God has called yeah. you to be in solidarity with. So, yeah. Yeah, I also. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I, my, my cynical side was unimpressed by Congress declaring Juneteenth a national holiday, okay. because I'm just going to say at any time you've got certain senators and certain representatives who voted for this, Marjorie Taylor Greene comes to mind. Anything she could vote for. <laughs> In my mind, be careful (laughs) because it probably means that she's doing she knows this is something that doesn't matter much. Mm. And that's why she voted for it. So I was actually not one of the big proponents for Juneteenth. I'm grateful that we've claimed it. And I think that we should be strategic. And so I offered you what that can look like. But um, Mm. but I need to say that I was I wasn't a denier, but I was definitely skeptical because anything that that crew says yes to around race means it's it can it's basically posturing or it it lends itself to posturing and there's we got no time for posturing in this day and age there (laughs) you didn't ask but i i thought i'd share that (laughs) make it more than posturing otherwise don't bother
1: (laughs) Uh, well keeping with that idea that we just don't have time for certain things. Um, I was struck by how you also see the pandemic as like a crucial make or break window for change in the Episcopal church. Uh, you write to loose the life bound up with empire and domination and be born as disciples who seek God's community of love. So in your opinion, are you seeing signs of rebirth and resurrection?
2: I am. I am. And I hear other people telling those stories too, and I'm, I'm encouraging folk, wherever you see rebirth, wherever you're seeing places and people who have experienced some real death during this time, but then also experienced reservation, please tell it. For instance, churches that figured out how to go online so quickly, and also figured out how to be okay with being messy. I almost think that's the bigger miracle for our churches in particular. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we've got a lot of smart people who figured out tech stuff and, you know, and, you know, talked to their 15 year olds and said, can you help us to do this online? Which was wonderful. And that's that's rebirth. Stay with it. Don't just go back into the building and leave your online presence and online community. But also. There's something we learned about about not having it perfect but giving it to God that I believe is one of the most important spiritual um, gains of this whole pandemic time. You know, that, that empire tells us that we have to master everything. Empire tells us that, and white domination systems tell us that it needs to be perfectly polished, that you can't have emotion showing frayed edges showing. um, And then that's, Those frayed edges are used as when we see them, that's often the reason why people of color really shouldn't be leading. It just feels very afraid when they're in charge. Or um, another way of saying that is they just don't do administration. Uh, (laughs) Or, you know, when Mm -hmm. women are in charge, oh, yeah, there was just a lot of emotion she was bringing. She seemed very angry or whatever. Um, What we're really saying, we're elevating this emotionless kind of automaton life and saying that that's the ideal. And what we've done during the pandemic, we have cried together, y'all. We mm. have we have discovered territory where nobody knew what was going on and we blocked anyway. We have embraced ways of being that women have known, that people of color have known, that poor people have known, but that didn't really match up with the way of elite empire culture. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So to me, that is one of the ways, like we have lost a lot of the life that we had that was bound up in empire. If we race back now to perfection and mastery and domination, that would be such a shame. And I believe that God's own heart would be grieving because God Mm. would be like, I had an opening. We had an opening. You were, you were depending on me. You were coming to me in prayer. I finally yeah. heard from y'all. Like God finally heard <laughs> from us. Because, because again, a lot of wealthier communities or educated communities or whatever, we've convinced ourselves we don't need God. In the midst yeah. of this pandemic, in the midst of this racial reckoning, we have needed God. Yeah. Don't go back. Don't go yeah. back to thinking you've got it all figured out. Don't go back to liturgies where you let the Spirit arrive at precisely a certain time on a particular day and otherwise, you know, but, oh, sorry, yeah. Holy Spirit, you shut up five minutes before your cue. So we need you to wait outside, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, like, well, I, I open, feel so strongly say, oh,
0: okay. uh, that uh, in our own context with Vital and Thriving, that, uh, you know, we really are seeing congregations that are willing to do deeper listening and mm-hmm. to begin to experiment and really try and mm-hmm. fail, yes, and learn through that failure. And uh, thank you for being here with us to encourage us on that on that journey. Now, you bet, I, Ken. Uh, now we have come now, Ken and Stephanie. Yes. To the lightning the most round. This part. is a tra- <laughs> This is a tradition <laughs> that we have started Not now standing. on this fourth episode
2: of our Excellent. podcast.
0: <laughs> Hey! Um,
2: all it takes is two times for something to be a tradition in the Episcopal Church, and so we've always done that. it that way.
0: That's right. So you have <laughs> mm-hmm. you have you have twenty in twenty seconds or less.
1: We've
2: <gasps> okay. got
0: three questions for you. If you're ready, Claire, take it away.
1: All right. First, what is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Go.
2: I was in Louisville, Kentucky, just a few weeks ago, and they served fried chicken and collard greens with pork. Where the pork made up half of the collard greens.
0: Uh-huh. Amazing. Yes, Lord. Yes.
2: I think I took less than twenty seconds on that one because this is fresh. Oh man. It's still fresh yeah. on my tongue y'all. I want, y'all. To, <laughs> I
0: I want to go it. as Liz Lemon says, I want to go to there.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I
0: want to go to there. Yes.
1: Okay. Second, what is your very first memory of a worship service? Go.
2: I remember when I was nine years old and attended a worship service um, and I had not yet been baptized and I was supposed to be, but I hadn't been. And anyway, I looked around at the church and I heard the pastor saying, you know, women, wives, you are to obey your husbands. And I looked around and realized, wait a minute, most of the women here, including my mother, are single mothers. I don't think he means wives obey your husbands i think he means women obey me and that was the day well, at yeah. nine years old i became i i got hip to the hermeneutic of suspicion yeah. <laughs> and it took me about 20 years to finally get baptized but it was because of that church service <laughs> oh,
1: wow. there. amazing yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: i love these okay fire away
1: yeah Tell us the name of a church leader or theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to or learning from right now that we should know more about.
2: Uh, I want you to know more about Drew Jackson. I just did a retreat with him and it was a retreat, especially with folk who are kind of post evangelicals. He's an evangelical pastor here in New York. He's a black man. He's a poet and writes some of the most beautiful um, just beautiful words, truthful words about race and faith. And um, someone once called him, what would happen if James Baldwin and Howard Thurman had a baby? <laughs> wow,
1: yeah. I want to uh, know him now. <laughs> yes, yes, and you want to read
2: him. He has a website and he he often, like, he shares his poems there. But please, Drew Jackson, what a brilliant brother. We, we should be listening to him more.
1: Yeah. Awesome.
0: Thank you for being our guests today, Ken and Stephanie, and uh, we look forward to continuing this conversation outside the podcast sometime soon. Hey. Maybe, maybe we'll have a revival here one of these days here on the West please Coast.
2: Please do, please do. <laughs> I want a Bay Area revival, rainbows <laughs> everywhere.
1: <laughs> uh, here, here. That's just every day. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. Thank you. Let's let's, let's add some Jesus to to that every day, right?
0: (laughs) So, Claire, what did you learn from Canon Stephanie today?
1: I learned so much, but the two things that just really have landed in me. One is when she was talking about Juneteenth being this liberation day for everyone and sort of graciously inviting all of us to celebrate this day. I found myself thinking of the way that the good news of the gospel has been shared, that it's this already, but not yet, like we have been freed and yet we don't quite know it. Um, And how so much of this conversation just felt like that kind of leaning into letting go of what keeps us from knowing and living in the love and the liberation of God yeah. And then I also just loved when she was talking about um, being a journalist and bringing that to her work. And she said, you know, I didn't go with all the answers, but I went with good questions. And I just feel like, goodness, if we can do one thing in our work as churches, just going with good questions instead of all the answers seems like such a, a simple and really vital practice.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I think I had that same sense of just how grounded in the now and the not yet, you know, the naming of the not yet with real clear-eyed kind of, you know, pretending like the challenges aren't the challenges. I I remember reading an interview with her one time in the Episcopal News Service. It was after the racial audit came out, and she was so – it was a terrible indictment of the Episcopal Church. Yeah. And she was so hopeful, but she said, I feel like we've thrown powder on the poltergeist you know we can we can like see it and address it uh, and she just has this kind of jesus rooted hope that says you know we, yeah. we still know what god is doing and um and i i find that hope uh deeply encouraging
1: yeah i i think when she kind of corrected herself and said yeah you know there are some things that have to die Because in order to speak with integrity about new life, we have to name that. And I just, uh, yeah, that tension was so powerful and yet so beautiful how she kind of keeps pointing us toward resurrection. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all so much for listening to these first episodes of the Vital and Thriving Podcast. We are going to be taking a brief summer hiatus. We hope that all of you are also. But we will be back in August with some new episodes and some incredible guests. So we will get information about that out to you soon.
0: This episode of the Vital and Thriving podcast was hosted by Claire Dietrich Rana and Scott Sherman. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeremy Sherman as tribute to Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, the joint initiative between Newbigan House of Studies. And the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. Visit vitalthriving.org for more information.